Good morning. Today's reading is Colossians 3, 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now, you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. These are the words of our Lord. Amen. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 3. We've been working our way through the book of Colossians. The title of this series has been Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Absolutely love it. We're talking about living the new life uh, this weekend. So grab your Bibles, Colossians 3. You can follow along. We'll be dissecting that text. Also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube live right now. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we're going to be taking communion today. So grab some juice and crackers and you can join us in that communion. Uh, let me start by reading a, a story that I came across a number of years ago. I found it quite interesting. It starts off by saying this, most of us have wondered at one time or another if we were switched at birth. <laughs> Are those really my parents? Now imagine your parents are mean and critical, that you've always been a disappointment to them and they to you. But then one day, you find a dusty trunk in the attic, you quietly pick the lock and open the trunk and discover papers that prove you had, in fact, been abducted as a baby. These aren't your parents after all. Why, why they're criminals. You discover that your real mom was a painter at the Sorbonne in Paris, and your real dad was a Nobel Prize winning scientist and a professional baseball player. And you say to yourself, of course, this explains everything. I'm extraordinary. I knew it all along. You also read that they are fabulously wealthy and have a lavish inheritance waiting for you. Now, the writer goes on and says, I mean, it's a fantastic story, but you get it. Such a discovery would cause you to interpret everything about your life, where you came from, your true identity, your capacities, your capabilities, the resources available to you, your future, your destiny. After that day, your life would never be the same. 
You would come down from the attic with new eyes for everything and everyone. Your whole life would feel new, changed and invigorated. I think it's a beautiful story of what happens when we encounter Christ and we enter into this brand new life and we have this new identity. I'm telling you, it changes everything. And what we're going to talk about today, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. And if you can understand this, it will revolutionize your life. It will transform your life. We're talking about living the new life, living our new identity. Take a look at your sermon notes here. Everyone is building their identity on something. Everybody is building their identity on something. Our identity is what gives us meaning and worth. So when you think of identity, there's really two questions that our identity uh, asks. And the first one is, what are you living for? That gives you your meaning, hope, and happiness. And really, you only have two options. You can either live for your glory, or you can live for God's glory. There's no other options. And so, how are you finding your meaning, hope, and happiness in life? The second question is, how well are you doing? This is where you get your worth and value. So, if you're living for your glory, what you'll find is that you are working for your value and worth. You work for it. You're working for your value and worth. And and you'll find in that that success will tend to go to your head. It will inflate you. And failure will go to your heart. It will deflate you. But if you're living for God's glory, this is what's fascinating about living for God's glory, is that you will work from not for your worth and value, but from your worth and value. And you will discover that we have a worth and value in Christ that all the success in this world can never give you and all the failure in this world can never take it from you. It's unshakable. Let's continue reading part of the intro. It says, Christianity gives us an identity that is the most unshakable, inclusive, freeing, and satisfying identity you could ever have. And so, living the new life, living the new identity is what we're talking about here. And so, let me show you kind of where we are as we've been working our way through the book of Colossians. Chapter 1 is, uh, talks about, the whole book talks about Christ's preeminence, that he's sufficient, uh, he's supreme, he's all-satisfying, no one will satisfy you like Christ. We have everything we need in Christ. And so chapter 1 talks about Christ's preeminence declared. And then chapter 2, we spent three weeks on this, uh, Christ's preeminence defended. We, we, we need to be aware of the philosophies in our culture today, legalism, and then the counterfeit Christianity that's out there that will, will take us off our game, so to speak. Get us out of our identity in Christ. Keep us from really experiencing all that we, we need through Jesus Christ. And so this now is very transitional in understanding all the book and how we begin to live in the reality of this new life that we have in Christ. Uh, as you've heard me talk about it over the last few weeks, we talked about narrowing the gap, the gospel gap. Anybody remember what I was talking about when I said the gospel gap? The gospel gap is that, that gap between my beliefs what I say I believe, and then how I behave. So I can say that I follow Christ and I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength. I want to love my neighbor as myself. And yet oftentimes my behavior can betray something contrary to my beliefs. It's called the gospel gap. I mean, here's one of the illustrations that I've used in understanding this. If someone as loving, wise, and powerful as God has promised to never leave you or forsake you, then why in the world would we ever be inordinately 
or inconsolably angry, bitter, anxious, despondent, or depressed about the people, things, and circumstances of our life. Why would, why would that happen? Because there's a gospel gap. And so how do you narrow the gap? This is how you narrow the gap right here as we transition into chapter three. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's, it's amazing. This is what has transformed my life, continues to transform my life. I mean, if you can get a hold of this, you're not going to be the same. You're not going to be the same. Better yet, if this gets a hold of you and you begin to really understand this, there's nothing quite, quite like this. So here's the first thing. If you want to begin to narrow the gap, here's the first thing that needs to happen. If you're going to live in the reality of your identity in Christ, you've got to seek and set your mind or your heart on your new identity in Christ. That is the gospel. Basically, it's just the gospel message. So seek and set your mind. He uses the word mind. Anytime the Bible uses the word mind, it's really talking about also our heart. It's talking about that inner part of us. And so let's go back, keep your Bibles open. Let's go back to verses one through four. Let me kind of walk through these and then we'll unpack them. So he says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, so he's saying, think out the implications. He's using logic here. If then this is true, and he's using identity language here. If you have been raised with Christ, sounds a little odd. I've been raised with Christ? Yeah, if you've indeed identified with Christ, you put your faith in him. So if then you have been raised with Christ, he says seek, the word seek means search for the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he says set, so don't just seek these things that are above, but set, the word set means fasten securely. Let this dominate your inner being, your person, your heart. Let it captivate your heart. So set or fasten securely your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So notice the contrast. And, and actually, these are the only two options you have. Your, your mind, your life will either be dominated by the things above, by God. You're either living for God's glory or you'll be living for your glory by focusing on created things as opposed to the creator. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life, that's key right there. So whatever you're seeking and setting your mind on, that is your life. But if you're seeking and setting your mind on your new identity in Christ, he's just saying, that's your life. So when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, there is not a more faith fortifying, life-liberating, soul-satisfying truth in the Bible than what we just read. I mean, this is out of this world. Nothing will make you more unshakable, unoffendable. I want to I be unoffendable. Anybody want to be unoffendable? Yeah. So unshakable, unoffendable, and unstoppable. You're never going to throw in the towel if you understand this. No matter how bad, how hard, how difficult it gets. And so, what is he talking about here in the first four verses? Well, there's a, there's a big theology word that you need to understand. It's called substitutionary atonement. The word atonement, one, one meaning of it, it's, it's, 
certainly not less than this, but it's much more than this, at one meant, atonement, at one meant. When you see that word, think at one meant, substitutionary at one meant. What's the at, at one meant? That we are at one with God through Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is, is really the good news is uh, the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. What are you doing when you repent and believe in him? It's substitutionary atonement. What do you do when you get baptized? By the way, we have a big baptism party on Easter weekend. If you've never been baptized, we'd love to baptize you. And what you're doing with baptism is you're identifying with the substitutionary death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That what he did, he did for you and me. Substitutionary atonement. So, I mean, think about it. When you go down into the water, so you, you're identifying with the life of Christ, going down in the water, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And so what he did, he did for you. In fact, I've got this statement on your notes. Everything that is actually true of Christ is legally, objectively true of you. That's substitutionary atonement. That's a profound statement. Everything that is actually true, because that's why he says, if then you have been, past tense, this has happened, you've identified with all that Christ has done. By the way, there's not a, there is not another belief system on this planet. There's no major cult or religion that even dares to come close to any of this, what we're talking about here. This is amazing. Substitutionary atonement. Everything that is actually true of Christ is legally and objectively true of you. So he says, seek or search for the things above, set or fasten securely your mind on things above. So really he's saying, this should be instinct. This should be second nature. You should focus on this. Let this so captivate you that it becomes part of your neural pathways. Kind of knee jerk. When things happen in your life, you go right, right, to, right here who you are in Christ, what he's done for you. And by the way, if you do that, you'll have all the resources you'll ever need to face anything. See, your life is no greater or no lesser than the thoughts you entertain in your head. So everybody's entertaining something in their head. He's saying, entertain this. That's why it tells us Proverbs 23, 7, King James Version, as a person thinks within himself, then so is he. I also like the verse, Proverbs 4.23. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It determines how you're going to respond to life, your feelings and your behavior in response to the people, things, and circumstances of life. It makes all the difference in the world. Above all else, guard your heart. What dominates your thoughts? What stirs your deepest emotions? What moves you to action? That's what he's saying. Let this dominate your thoughts, stir your deepest emotions, and move you to action. Now, He makes the contrast not on the things that are on earth because he's saying that because we we are already seeking and setting our mind on something. What are you seeking and setting your mind on? And then he says, if you're seeking and setting your mind on these things, the substitutionary atonement, as we already stated, everything that is actually true of Christ is legally and objectively true of you, then, then Christ is your life. Philippians 1.21, Paul says this, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So what Paul is saying here is that make Christ your meaning in life. How do you answer the question, the first question, what are you living for? Live for Christ. Make him your meaning. Live for his glory. 
And no one will give you greater worth and value than doing that. Nothing will give you greater worth and value than doing that. So to seek and set your mind or your heart on something that is on anything is to make it your life. When you set your mind, seek these things, you're making it your life. Don't make anything on earth your life more than Christ. Now, let's walk through these statements and show you what we have in Christ. And we will spend the rest of our lives and all of eternity to search these things out. But let me just give you kind of a hint of some of these things. He says here, you died with Christ. What does that mean? What are the implications of this? Let me give you a couple fill in the blanks. We are forgiven, reconciled, adopted, and loved, and then dot, dot, dot. In other words, the list goes on and on. By the way, if you want to find out more about that list, come, come here, Good Friday weekend, uh, Easter weekend, Good Friday service. I'm going to talk about this. We're going to kick off a new teaching series that weekend on God's amazing promises. And we're going to look at all the promises that the death of Christ brings to us. This is just a short list. And I've got all the verses there. You can look these up on your own. I would encourage you to take these, meditate on them, let them get a hold of your heart. This is just one part. But, but we died with Christ. We're forgiven, which means God treats you as free from the guilt of your sins as, as if you had died on the cross and paid for it yourself. And you're reconciled. You have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You have intimacy with him. You're reconciled to him. And you're adopted. You're a child of God. And you're loved. Oh, my goodness. No one loves you like he loves you. And then you are raised with Christ. What does that mean? Well, Easter weekend, we're going to talk a lot about this. But let me just give you just a short list here. You're a new creation. You're a masterpiece. You're empowered by God. You are secure. Let's walk through a couple of those. What does that mean, masterpiece? Where did you get that, Pastor Ray? Well, Ephesians 2.10, that you are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works. That word workmanship is the Greek word poema, where we get the word poem. So you are God's masterpiece. You are God's piece of work. Turn to the person next to you and say, you are God's piece of work. And then say, you are God's masterpiece. That wasn't meant to be condescending. Some of you have sounded a little condescending. No, I'm, I'm his piece of work. I'm his masterpiece, literally is what that word means. That his, through his power, he's working in me. And I'm indwelt by his Holy Spirit. So whatever I'm facing, I've got the power to get through it. I'm secure. Nothing will ever separate me from his love. And then I've been seated with Christ. What does that mean? Well, when kings ask you to sit at their right hand, it means that you are at the same level of honor in their kingdom. So that's your first fill in the blank there, honor. And it's also a place of intimacy fellowship with the king and authority. The king has, has told us, according to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that we are to go and make disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. We are to make disciples, proclaim the gospel, and then also a life of significance. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18 that he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So we're, we're to be a people that not only help people to connect with God, but to connect with each other. 
That's amazing. That's, that's a very significant role, very important role. So let me ask you this. How did the father respond to the son's return to his right hand after conquering sin, death, and evil for all in mankind? Because that's what we know. So Christ lived the life we should have lived, died, died the death we should have died. Then he resurrected from the grave, and then he ascended back to be on the right hand of the father. So how did the father respond when he came back after he accomplished this? I know how the father responded. He rejoiced in him. He adored him. He celebrated his son like a, like a war hero coming back home, like a soldier coming back home from war. And so what does that mean? How does that apply to our lives? That's how God sees and relates to us. I mean, when it says in verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God, when God looks at us, who does he see? He sees Christ because of substitutionary atonement. We identify with all that he's done. We take on his, his identity. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. The Father treats you as if you had accomplished and achieved everything that Jesus has accomplished and achieved. He treats you as if you are just as holy and righteous and beautiful as Jesus is. Now, this is out of this world. This is, this is, it seems crazy, doesn't it? I mean, just, wow, unbelievable, unbelievable. And, and then here's the last one. That, that we will, we will, future tense, we will appear with Christ. This is our happily ever after. I long for that day. Oh, my goodness. Am I the only one that longs for that day? Okay, there's more of us. Some of you are just saying, I just don't want to go just yet, okay? Some of you are thinking, yeah, I understand. I, I, still have, I still have some time. I don't know how much time, but eventually I'm going to be there for all eternity. And so this is what he's saying. That's our happily ever after. Now, if you ever get tired of hearing these truths, the gospel, then you don't get it. Because you're sitting out there right now saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know that. I've already heard that before. Tell me something new, Pastor Ray. If you're saying that, then you don't get it. People who know and understand and live in the reality of the gospel never get tired of it. And they never get tired of talking about it. You need to set your mind on these things. You need to seek these things and set your mind on these things. These things need to captivate your heart and your life. came across a verse a number of years ago that I found quite fascinating. It's 1 Peter 1.12. Peter talks about the gospel, goes to the gospel, and at the end of this, this is what he says, 1 Peter 1.12. Talking about the gospel, he says, things in which, things into which angels long to look. So I thought about that. I go, what? The gospel? The gospel, the, the angels have been around for a few thousand years. Would you agree with that? Probably understanding what the scripture teaches. I would say that they're brilliant beings and they're in the very presence of God. And the gospel is something that they long, they have passion, they have desire to look into it. They are blown away that the God of the galaxies would pour his grace, mercy, and love upon people like us. <laughs> They're blown away by that. And looking into the gospel even more so, should we be blown away by the gospel message? This is absolutely the most important and powerful truth you will ever hear. Nothing will transform your life, heal your wounded soul, set you free like living in the reality of your new identity in Christ. We could spend all morning just talking about that. You could spend the rest of your life, like I said, talking about this. We will spend all eternity exploring the height, the width, the depth, the length of our identity in Jesus Christ. Now, everything that is actually true of Christ is legally and objectively true of you. 
But that's not where it stops. You can know that as a concept, but you have to experience that as a reality. That's where we got to begin to narrow the gospel gap. It must also become true of you subjectively and experientially for it to transform your life, to narrow the gospel gap. So think about this. You could look at these truths all day long, but until these truths light your heart on fire, you're not going to be changed by any of these truths. So how do you get there? I'm I'm about to tell you. I'm glad you asked. Okay? We're going to get there. This is how you get there. And it's a power, it's a work in the power of the Holy Spirit, but there's some things that we have to do. We have to learn how to put off the old self and put on the new self. Let's take a look at that first one, put off the old self. We've got to learn how to repent. Repent is a 180, it's an about face. It's a U-turn. Look what he says here in verses five through nine. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So once again, using that... uh, kind of an identity statement, earthly, we're identifying with something that's created, we're getting our sense of meaning from something that is created, and he's going to go on with this, with this list to show us this is what that causes. If, you, if you've misplaced your identity, this is what it causes, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Now, that's a key two words right there. That's key to all the other uh, words that he's using, evil desire covetousness, which is closely related to evil desire, and which is idolatry. Idolatry is kind of a summarization of all of these. That's the root. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming in these you two walk. So this is how you used to live your life. When you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. So he starts verse 5 by saying put to death. Now he says you must put them all away. Then he gives another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So three times He uses uh, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Verse 8, put them all away. Verse 9, put off the old self. They all basically mean the same way, same thing. Put off the old self. You've got to learn how to repent. Now, let's take a couple key words that I think summarizes all of this sin, these two lists of sin that he has in verses 5 through 9. The word evil desire. I want us to think about that just for a minute. Eddie pushed me just a bit. I'm going to back off up here. I don't want to yell at him anymore. I just want, to, just want to talk, just have a little conversation here. And once in a while, I'll yell when I feel like I need to. So, evil desire. The Greek word is epithumia. And it means over-desire, inordinate desire, or excessive desire. Now, here's what's fascinating about this word is that every place in the New Testament where character change or supernatural heart change is mentioned, this word is there to explain what is wrong with our hearts. It's kind of a summary of all that's wrong with us. 
This is not a desire for something evil. It says evil desire, but it's not necessarily a desire for something evil when you look at the definition of it. It is an over-desire for something good that leads to evil. So it's, it's, it's really making a good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. And it becomes a God thing in our life. It becomes something that's evil. So I can do that with my marriage. I can do that with my kids. I can do that with my house, my, my, my possessions. I can do that with any number of things. Any earthly thing, any created thing can be this evil desire because we make it our life. That's what that word means, evil desire. So it is an over-desire for something good that leads to evil, a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. And, and this is how sin works in the heart psychodynamically. If you can understand this, you're going to be able to work through all the issues of your life. You can overcome those hurts, habits, and hang-ups that seem to dominate your life. This is... This is how our hearts work psychodynamically. Everyone is living for something. That something is your life. And everybody is either consciously or subconsciously saying this. If I have that, if I can accomplish that, if I can achieve that, my life has meaning. And then I'll have worth and value. You're saying that either consciously or subconsciously. Everybody here, everybody out there. That's why I know that we're image bearers of God. We didn't. We're not here by random chance and unlimited time, okay? We're not an accident. We're created by divine designer who put in our hearts this ability to connect with him and to know him, and we need him at the center of our lives. And if he's not at the center of our lives, something else will be at the center of our lives. Regardless of what you might believe about life, everybody is living for something or someone. By the way, that's why when people kind of reach the end of their life. They don't have anything to live for. That's why they put a bullet in their head. That's why they take a handful of pills. They have no sense of meaning. Maybe they've built their life on, on something that's created. It has let them down. It's over for them. That's why they do what they do. They have, they have lost their sense of meaning. And we're so, so everyone's saying that about something. That's the essence of what's wrong with us. Now, why is that bad? Well, look at the next word in this list idolatry. Idolatry is a summary of all the sins. And you see this same kind of list, similar to this, found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. So what verses 5 through 9 is saying is that all sexual immorality, impurity, passion, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, all of your problems, everything that troubles you is the result of idolatry evil desire, epithumia, good things that have become ultimate things in your life. So what is idolatry? It's on your notes. It'll also be up on the big screen behind me. Here's what idolatry is. Idolatry is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. By the way, something is already absorbing your heart and imagination. It's either God or counterfeit God or pseudo-savior. So it is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. That's from Timothy Keller, Counterfeit Gods. It's a great book. So here's your next fill in the blank. Idolatry is always the reason we ever do anything wrong. 
That's fundamentally what's wrong with our hearts. And this is why we struggle in our life with all the hurts, habits, and hang-ups. If we can understand this and get to the root here, we can have a, a transformed life. Now, most of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments. Anybody know where the Ten Commandments are found in the Bible? Yeah, you got that right. Okay. You're 100% right. Whereabouts in the Bible? Exodus 20 is one of those places. And in Exodus 20, anybody know what the first of the ten, top ten list is of God? What's the first of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. Notice there's not a third option there. He doesn't give a third option. What? You shall have no other gods before me. You're either going to serve the true and living God or you're going to have a counterfeit God. But everyone will have a God. You're going to serve something or someone. Something will be your life. Here's what I found through the years as I've studied this is that we violate, we break commandments two through 10 in direct proportion how we break the first one. So they all go back to the first one. By the way, the first four have to do with our relationship with God. The next six have to do with our relationship with man. So the first four are vertical. The next six are horizontal. But we violate two through 10 in direct proportion how we've already violated the first one. Let me just give you a quick illustration from my own life. When I was a young pastor, I, I, I really did care about people and I wanted people to know that I cared about them. And so I was caught in these dilemmas from time to time where someone would give me a book or a tape or uh, back in those days they were tapes or cassette tapes. And, uh, and so uh, they would give me this, say, hey, Pastor Ray, you gotta listen to this. And so I'd throw it in my bag and I'd forget all about it. About two, three weeks later, I crossed their path. They say, hey, Pastor Ray, did you get a chance to listen to that book? And, and, and that person was really excited about it. It was maybe life-changing for them. And they just were hoping that I had listened to the tape or read the book or whatever. And because I wanted to be a caring pastor, and I really wanted them to know that, that no, I didn't just throw it in my bag and forget about them. I really do care about them, but that's exactly what I did. And so I was tempted. I was tempted to like, uh, like, ah. Uh, want them to feel bad like I just forgot about them, but I haven't even given a second thought since the last time I interacted with them in reality. And so why would I be tempted to kind of lie to them to kind of fudge the truth? Maybe it's a white lie. No, it's a lie. Okay. It's just a flat out lie. If I just said, no, no. Oh yeah, that's a great book. Uh, I've just barely opened, uh, you know, I've just read the intro. Okay. I actually didn't do that either, but uh, well, what would I, why would I be tempted? because I've already violated, if I indeed walked out that lie and didn't just say, hey, you know what, I didn't even give it a second thought, I'm so sorry, I'm really busy. And, and that's what I had to learn to do, but, but why would I be so torn by that? Because at that moment, think about this, I, I have, I'm more concerned about what they think about me than what God thinks about me. I've already started violating possibly that very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Does that make sense? Because the Bible says don't lie. In fact, that's number nine on the list. Do not bear false witness. Don't lie. But why would I be tempted to lie? Because I'm not, because I'm not living in the reality of my identity in Christ and what I have in him. Does that make sense? I mean, I could walk that out with every one of these and show you. They're all rooted in some form 
of idolatry. Now, there's three tests to be able to identify your misplaced identities in idols. Now, this is really critical that we understand this. Here's the first test of these three. What thing in my life, if I lost it, would make me no longer want to live? That's your first test. What thing in my life, if I lost it, would make me no longer want to live? If that's true, it has become your life. It's become your meaning, hope, and happiness. I mean, it could be financial status, personal relationship, your family, professional identity, human approval, power, influence, control of your environment, or any infinite number of things. Any number of things. Now, let me just say that idolatry isn't the only reason why we commit suicide. You can actually commit suicide because of physiological issues in your body, chemistry issues. So uh, people that commit suicide, they don't necessarily always do it because of idolatry. They could actually have chemistry issues, and it drives them into depression, and they don't take care of it, and then they commit suicide, just to keep that in mind, okay? You guys tracking with me? You guys understand that? Okay. So what thing in my life, if I lost it, would make me no longer want to live? Number two, what are the things you daydream about in your spare time? You daydream about things. Your mind's always going. So what things do you daydream about in your spare time? The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. See, that's why the Bible says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Proverbs 4.23, Matthew 6.21, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. What you're treasuring, what you treasure will dominate your thoughts, stir your deepest emotions, and move you to action. So you have to be mindful of the things that you are thinking about. Think about the things you're thinking about. When I did this a number of years ago, it was shocking. It was terribly troubling because this is what I did in my spare time. I thought about work, my list, things I still needed to do, preparing for the future. I got these things I've got to keep doing. I got to keep working. And then I also had these brain debates going on in my mind over conversations that I had about how people treated me or said things to me and how I should have responded differently and, and all of these things. And so what I found out is that what dominates my thoughts, my spare time, I'm a workaholic and I'm a people pleaser. That's what was dominating my, my thoughts. That's what was going on. That's what I was daydreaming about. That's what I was going to bed thinking about. What we, we are what we love, we worship what we love, we talk about what we love, what we love dominates our solitude. Now think about this, if Christ, if Christ Jesus is everything the Bible says he is, oh my goodness, we should live for him, walk with him, enjoy him, interact with him, practice his presence, that should dominate our solitude. We should daydream about him. I know you, some of you might say, oh, that sounds crazy. No, it's not crazy at all. If he's your life, that's where your mind's going to go to when you daydream in your spare time. Oh, my goodness. That's what he's saying. When he says, seek 
these things. Set your mind on these things. He's saying, let this dominate your solitude. Let it become second nature. And then you can face anything in life. That's what he's saying. Okay. Here's the third, third test. This third test is perhaps, I think, one of the best tests for me and my wife. A couple years ago when we went through the kind of the crazy stuff here at Desert Breeze with COVID and other things that went down, this is what got us back on track and kept us focused on Christ right here. This, this test right here. Follow your inordinate and inconsolable emotions back to their source. So let me walk you through this. This is what this looks like. When you take a good thing and it becomes an ultimate thing and it is being threatened in your life, so let's just say you got a job, you're a year away from retirement, but they're threatening layoffs. It would be normal for you to be anxious, to blow the dust off your resume, to maybe start circulating because you got to work a little bit longer because you can't quite retire yet, and there's going to be layoffs coming. Nothing wrong with that. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, you're not just, and it's being threatened, you're not just going to be anxious, you're going to be paranoid. That's your fill in the blank. You're going to be paranoid. Now, let me explain something here to you. Notice what I said, inordinate. So it's okay to be anxious. You know, we're emotional beings. So a certain level of anxiety is actually really healthy for you. But when I say inordinate, it means it's, it goes from anxiety to being paranoid, and it's inconsolable. All of us from time to time are not just going to be anxious. We're going to be paranoid. But if we're consolable through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's, that's what we want. We, we, can, we can talk ourselves off of the ledge, so to speak. And we need friends to help us. Believe me, even as a pastor, I've been on the, on the ledge. I'm, I'm not, I haven't been suicidal. I'm just saying that I'm like, oh, I got these inordinate emotions. I'm not just anxious, I'm paranoid. I was a bit paranoid over what was going on a couple years ago. And, but it wasn't inconsolable. As we came back to the gospel, we had people supporting us and loving us and encouraging us through that. We kept coming back to the gospel and our identity in Christ. And it was able to, we were able to move away from the edge, little by little, both Nancy and I. What we found is that we not only drew, grew closer to one another, but we grew closer to God. And I'm telling you, what we went through, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Because we have a level of intimacy right now, and we have something that's happening in this church unlike I've seen in a long time. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing what God has done and what he continues to do. But I had to work through this, my wife and I. When you have a good thing that has become an ultimate thing, and it's blocked. So let's just say you're working, you worked really hard to get that promotion. I mean, you worked your tail off to get that promotion. You deserve that promotion, and you need that promotion anyway to provide for your family. But the boss gave that promotion to his lug nut son-in-law who's worthless and lazy okay so he promotes him you're not just going to become so that goal is blocked you're not just going to become angry you're going to become bitter and it will be like a cancer working in your heart when you have a good thing that has become an ultimate thing and you lose it, it's lost. Let's just say that, and I've seen this uh, a couple years ago, 
it's been more than a couple years ago, when I was with Phoenix Fire, went on a call where a guy was about a year away from retirement. They, they laid him off. And so he kind of missed out on some of his retirement. He was of the age that when he started putting his resume out there, he couldn't find a job. Nobody wanted to hire him. He's too old. And oh my goodness, he was distraught. He was depressed. And he was suicidal. And he tried to commit suicide. He tried to take a razor blade and cut his throat when we arrived on the scene. Why is that? Because his sadness, this, this job loss, was he was sad. It's okay to be sad over that. But he became depressed and suicidal. I've also... Uh, even in church and, and as a pastor, but as a paramedic going on calls before because of uh, jilted lovers. One of the worst calls I ever went on was when I was first on the fire department, and it was a jilted lover call where this guy had been with this gal on again, off again, on again, and this gal was his life, and it was evident he was living for her, but she's gone, never to come back. He was so distraught, depressed, that he took a gun and, and blew his brains out, basically. It was ugly. It was horrible. Why is that? Because his life, he lost it. He was depressed and suicidal. He took it. Now, let me, let me ask you this. Do you understand your inordinate, inconsolable emotions? Are you mindful enough to see how you find yourself responding with paranoia, bitterness, depression, even suicidal thoughts? Are you in touch with that? You see, the neglected inner life doesn't go away. It will lead you astray. It will wreak havoc in your life. Are you in touch with what's going on in your life? The internal conflict is healing and wholeness trying to happen. Now, you really have, have three choices in dealing with these inordinate, inconsolable emotions. You can express them and you'll damage and tear up relationships. You can suppress them and you'll damage and tear up yourself. Or you can cast your burdens upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will not allow the righteous to be shaken. Psalm 55, 22. Listen to me. Take them to God. That's why I love the book of Psalms. 150 chapters of raw emotion. These psalmists are pouring out their hearts to God. You pour your heart out to God and a few trusted friends as you're struggling with this, and they'll help to walk you and talk you off of the ledge to get your heart recentered, so you can set, seek and, uh, seek and set your mind on your identity in Christ, the new life that you have in him. Seek and set your, your heart on your new life, your new identity in Christ by putting off the old self. So you've got to be able to identify this. That's how you put off the old self. You say, oh, my goodness. I've made my, I've made my wife. I've made my spouse. I've made my church. I've made my what anything, any created thing, my life. And I can see my inordinate emotions, my inconsolable and inordinate emotions having that effect on my life. And so I've got to put off the old self. Now I'm going to put on the new self. What do we do here, right here? Put on the new self. I've got to believe. I've got to believe in Christ. It's got to become a reality to me. Look at verses 10 and 11. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So in other words, the more you seek and set your mind, your heart is captivated by your new identity in Christ, you're going to become more like Jesus. You're going to take on his image. And then he goes on, he says, verse 11, here there is no, not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. 
So this new identity is about becoming more and more like Christ, but this contentment and completeness in Christ is available to every person on the planet. Did you notice the list of people that he mentions here? He's just saying, this is available to everybody. Now, next fill in the blank. When you begin to experience inordinate emotions, you must ask yourself, what am I losing right now that has become my life more than Christ? Like I said, this is emotional intelligence. This is mindfulness. Something or someone has hijacked my heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ. Now remember 2 Corinthians 11.3. Remember when we talked about that in the last few weeks where this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth, that I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your hearts may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what the enemy is up to. He wants you to put your heart, your life, your meaning on anything other than Christ. That's what he's working to do. And so, when you begin to experience inordinate emotions, you must ask yourself, what am I losing right now that has become my life more than Christ? Here's the next one. You must say to those people, things, and circumstances that are controlling you, you are not my life, Christ is my life. Now, I would suggest you say that to their face, but, uh, but you kind of say it to yourself. You say that to yourself. You kind of work through this. So, if you are, the, if you are trying to get your... Uh, your marriage, your job, your children, your family, your health, your friends, your home, car, money, church, trying to get from any of those things what you should be getting from God, listen to me, you will crush it under the weight of your unrealistic expectations. If your spouse, your marriage is your life, you're going to wreck your marriage. If your children are your life, you're going to wreck those kids. You're going to swing to one extreme or the other. You're going to be too controlling or you're going to be too compliant. Just, I just want them to be happy. Either way, you're going to wreck them. You're not going to have the balance that you need and be able to respond to when they're acting out and they're, they're doing things that they shouldn't. You're, going to, you're not going to be able to do that because they're, they're your life. Oh, what are we going to do? You're going to freak out. You're going to, you're going to be paranoia happening in your life, and then you're not going to respond appropriately. And so that's why it's important. Love anything more than God, and it will enslave you when you seek it. It will disappoint you when you get it. It'll, it'll never be enough, and it will devastate you when you lose it. You must identify it, replace it with Christ. How? By rejoicing in what I have in Christ more than the idol. Christ is more satisfying than anything in this world. Whatever you're trying to get out of that idol, you can get so much more out of Christ. I'm telling you, that's the gospel. And if you have made an idol out of your work or family, you don't want to stop loving your work or family, but you want to love Christ so much more that you're not enslaved by those attachments. You must say about those earthly things, you are a good thing, I'm glad I have you, but you're not my life. Amen. If you love God with all of your heart, then you will love everything else appropriately, keeping them in their proper place. Otherwise, you'll have, you'll suffer from disordered loves. Here's the next one. Through spiritual disciplines, your identity in Christ must become more desirable and satisfying to your heart than your idol. So spiritual disciplines are those things that increase your capacity to find your deepest and most durable satisfaction, contentment, and completeness and joy in Christ. Listen to me. I mean this with all sincerity. If this church here doesn't help to stir your deepest passions for Jesus, go find another church that does. Yeah. 
because that's what you need more than anything. You need to be a part of a church, a community, a group of people, have some friends that when you hang out with them, they stir your appetite for Jesus. You want him more than you want anything. And they help to get your heart off of the created things onto the creator. That's what spiritual disciplines are supposed to do. I'm telling you, when I spend time first thing in the morning, that's what I'm doing. I'm stirring my heart to know Jesus, to walk with him, to experience him, to love him. Because I'm telling you, there's nothing better. And when he dominates your solitude, there's nothing better than that. I work out with Jesus. I work out with some really good people here in the church. We go and we got a personal trainer and he attends here. He's a great guy, does fantastic work. But Jesus is with us. I know that Jesus is with me as I'm working. I'm thinking about verses. I'm thinking about all kinds of stuff. Of course, I'm talking trash to all of them too. And sometimes I don't talk as much trash as I could because Jesus is there, okay? So through spiritual disciplines, your identity in Christ must become more desirable and satisfying to your heart than your idol. Here's the last one. You must learn how to worship and praise until your heart is so sweet and satisfied in Christ that you're able to release your grip on anything you think you can't live without other than Christ. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always again, I say rejoice. It almost sounds crazy. Rejoice in the Lord always? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for you dominate your solitude. That's what he's saying. Now, when you look at the Grand Canyon or the Himalayas or the billions of stars in the sky at night through a telescope, you know that no human being created any of that. You know that no human being created any of that. When you look at the gospel, you know that no human being thought this up. This is too spectacular, too glorious, too amazing. Let's prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father God, we are filled with joyful awe and wonder over the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And as we take these communion elements, we acknowledge that through Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, by grace through faith in him. And if you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus, what a wonderful morning to do that. What you need to do is acknowledge your sin that separates you from God and believe that Christ died in your place for your sins And then identify with him, confess him as Savior and Lord, and become a part of the family of God. It's by grace through faith in him. God, when we put our faith in you, we have these amazing privileges of living a new life, new identity. This new identity is the most unshakable, inclusive, freeing, and satisfying identity we could ever have. Help us to identify, confess, and repent of those idols in our lives that compete for our heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from you. Just think for a minute. What are those things that compete for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections? You need to be able to identify those things. What what causes you to behave badly, respond wrongly to the people, things, and circumstances of life. There's an idol down deep inside your heart. You need to be able to identify that. So God, may we daily seek and set our hearts on our new identity in Christ Jesus, putting off the old self and putting on the new self by finding our deepest satisfaction, contentment, completeness, and joy in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Got three stations up here. Make your way up to one of the stations. They'll give you the two cups, their double cup. Take it back to your seat, and I'll walk us through the process here this morning.
So here's a question for you. What are your idols? You got them. You got those things that are competing for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections away from Christ. If you can't identify those, you're doomed. I've been watching the news here lately prayerfully. I've been praying for Ukraine. I hope you're praying for them too as they are fighting for their freedom from Russian invasion and oppression. And I've been praying for the presidents and the people there. And what's fascinating about this, this president is almost kind of a modern day William Wallace, (laughs) kind of Braveheart kind of a guy. You can take our lives, but you can't take our freedom, you know, kind of this attitude. I love it. He's got a great attitude. But we need to be praying for those folks. There are Christians hunkered down in church basements over there. There are orphanages over there that could be wiped out and taken over. You need to be praying for them. And I was thinking of that as it relates to what Jesus did for us. Jesus laid down his life for us so that we could be free. I know there's a lot of people that think, oh, if I give my life to Jesus, I'm going to, I'm not going to be free. I'm going to have to give up all my freedom. No, no, no. You enter into a freedom unlike you've ever experienced before. You see, these elements represent a couple different things primarily, is that you and I are more sinful than we ever dared to think. We were so sinful, Jesus had to die for us. There was no other way we could be reconciled to God. But it also is telling us that we are more loved than we ever dared to dream He loved us so much, he wanted to die for us. So the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat this bread together. We are identifying with the substitutionary death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. All that he has done, he's done that for us. We enter into this new new life and new identity in him. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's together. So here's my blessing for you. It's Zephaniah Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will comfort you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Love you guys.